Welcome to the High Income Business Writing Podcast, helping you propel your writing business to a whole new level. And now, here's your host, Ed Gandia. Well, hello there. Thank you for joining me for episode 100 of the High Income Business Writing Podcast. My name is Ed Gandia, and this is the podcast for business writers and copywriters who want to take their writing businesses to the six-figure level or the part-time equivalent. As a quick reminder, you can find the detailed show notes for this episode by going to b2blauncher.com forward slash episode 100. Okay, so you're going to have to forgive me right off the bat because I'm about to go on a bit of a rant here. Uh, And I try to stay away from really controversial topics, but this is one that's really hard to ignore, especially when you're out there as a self-employed professional working your tail off and you realize that there's a system that in many ways works against you. The most serious problem facing U.S. taxpayers is the complexity of the tax code. And that's not just my opinion. That is an actual, almost word-for-word statement from the IRS in a report that I came across. According to that same IRS report, an analysis of IRS data uncovered that U.S. taxpayers and businesses spend about $7.6 billion, with a B, billion hours per year complying with the filing requirements of the Internal Revenue Code. And that figure doesn't even include the millions of additional hours that taxpayers have to spend when they are required to respond to an IRS notice or an audit. The compliance costs are staggering, both in absolute terms and relative to the amount of tax revenue collected. So let me share a couple of statistics with you based on Bureau of Labor Statistics data on the hourly cost of an employee it's estimated that the cost of complying with the individual and corporate income tax requirements in ticks in 2006, which is the latest data I was able to get, amounted to $193 billion, or a staggering, just to put it in perspective, a staggering 14% of aggregate income tax receipts. So just the compliance alone is 14% of what the government is bringing in. The tax code has grown so long that it has become challenging even to figure out how long it is. There are all kinds of estimates. Some I found put at 2.1 million words, and the same report found that the number of words in the code has more than tripled since 1975. So as you can probably tell, I'm not a fan of a current system. I'm not a fan of April 15th. I know we can do better as a country. I know we can do much better as a country. Personally, I think the fair tax at fairtax.org is the best viable solution to replace a broken system because rather than penalizing production and effort, it taxes consumption. And it's an embedded tax. It only replaces a current system without adding a tax burden It's a lot more fair than what we have today, and it's so much simpler. So that's the end of my rant. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're stuck with the system we currently have, and at least we're stuck with it for now. And until it changes, until we get real fundamental reform, we have to figure out how to navigate the ins and outs, especially when you're a self-employed professional. And in this episode... I'm going to attempt to help you do that by asking my guest a bunch of questions you guys told me you wanted answered. 
My guest is Trevor McKendrick, and Trevor started Salem Software, which is a developer of Spanish language iOS applications. He grew it to over a million users and sold the company in 2015. He's been featured in the Startup Podcast, which is huge, one of the biggest podcasts out there, the Huffington Post, Business Insider, Fox News, Fast Company, and numerous other publications. Trevor holds a master's degree in accounting and just recently created an accounting essentials course for entrepreneurs and freelancers. And you can find Trevor and information on his accounting course at trevormckendrick.com. So with that, let's go ahead and get right to that interview because he's got a lot to share with you. And I'll come back at the end with a quick announcement. Hey, Trevor, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Before we get into this, the, the questions, we got some great questions, many of them from uh, people in my tribe. Give us a little bit of background on yourself. So tell us you know, what you do, where you work, a little bit about your background and uh, what, what you've been up to. Yeah, so I have a uh, – I went to school, graduated in, in 2010 with a master's and a bachelor's degree in accounting. Uh, from actually the, the top accounting school in in the country, um, and uh, worked for uh, as an auditor for an accounting firm in the Silicon Valley. After that, for a couple of years, auditing uh, the the finances of companies like Adobe and and uh, tech companies like that, uh, and then quit and I started my own software company uh, back in 2012. We made uh, Spanish language uh, iPhone apps. Um, I speak Spanish, and we we had a collection of apps, and then I sold that at the end of last year. Uh, and now I uh, I'm working on a couple of different projects that I uh, maybe we can we can talk about a little bit later. But uh, yeah, now I'm happy to be talking to you here. Excellent. Okay, so I, and I am glad to have you here because the questions about accounting, bookkeeping, business structure, and all that these things come up all the time. And I have to tell people, listen, I can only speak about kind of my situation. This is not financial advice, uh, but it, it people these are these are questions that that a lot of people have, and unless they have an accountant of their own, it's they really don't know at least kind of where they should look and general direction they should go in. So, very timely. Um, let's start with self-employment taxes because this is one of the biggest areas that I got asked about when I put this out there. Um, What are they and how on earth can I reduce, legally reduce self-employment taxes as a freelance professional? So what are they? So self-employment taxes have a bad rep because they they feel like they attack people who are self-employed. When in reality, um, if you've been employed, if you've been an employee somewhere, you've always been paying uh, self-employment taxes. You just didn't kind of know, you just didn't know it because the way self-employment taxes work is, uh, you know, you get your paycheck and they take out, you know, for let's just talk about FICA, which is like Social Security and Medicare, right? You, uh, they take that out of your out of your paycheck, but at the same time, which most people don't realize, is your employer matches that, and so they have to pay uh, exactly what you pay, also. To the government for these uh, for these FICA taxes. Well, when you're self-employed, you're the employee, but you're also the employer, and so now you're paying both sides of it. That's what self-employment taxes are. Um, now, how can people avoid it or pay less of it legally? Um, you know, we're going to get uh, into the weeds here a little bit, uh, but the way to do that is to uh, 
make what's called an S-Corp election uh, when you file your taxes. And people talk about this thing all the time, like, oh, I, I hear that if I have an, I have an S-Corp, it helps me save on taxes. And they don't really know, you know, always understand what, what, what that is. If you just go to your accountant, and everyone should have an accountant, by the way, if, if they're serious about running a business, tell them that you want to understand more about making an S-Corp election, and he'll be able to walk, through, walk you through this whole thing. So self-employment, I guess another word or another term is payroll tax. Is, is it the same? Are they interchangeable, those terms? They are. They are. Um, and, and again, the reason that people kind of get confused about it is because when you're an employee, uh, you're only paying half of it because your employer matches it basically. When you're self-employed, you have to pay both sides. Yeah, it's like uh, 15 point something percent yep, total. Yep, right? Yeah, so, you, you know your know your numbers. Yep. Yeah, before it was only the seven, but you know, let's uh, yeah. So now you're paying the whole thing, uh, and so an S corp is a good path to to maybe reducing that, and that's something that uh, your accountant should definitely be able to help you with. Um, and I'm just curious. I'm not not. We don't need to get into the weeds too much, but. Why would an S corp suddenly change that? I mean, what is it about it that that would reduce your personal your uh, payroll tax liability? Yeah, so you pay self employment taxes on your on on payroll on like what the business pays you, uh, and the way the S corp works is uh, in the S corp you pay yourself a salary on which you have to pay your self employment taxes, but any profits that the business makes beyond your salary. Um, they, they're you pay regular taxes on the on, on those profits, but you do not pay self employment taxes. Gotcha. So it's in how you classify your overall income. Then that is exactly correct. Yes. Okay. Um, okay. Super. Super. Now um, let's do this before we get. And I want to come back to this S corp idea because there were some questions about business structure. But uh, before we get there, let's tackle the other biggie, which is the uh, just income tax in general. So as a self-employed professional, had lots of questions from people about how do I reduce my tax burden? You know, how do I maximize deductions? What things should I be looking at that maybe I'm not looking at? Any ideas there? Yeah, so – everyone wants like you know the list of the all the deductions that they can take and and uh what you know what things can i deduct that i that i don't know about and frankly no such list exists uh and if you go to a cpa or an accountant they'll they'll tell you the same thing um because every business is different and every business is going to have different deductions um so the rule is a bit like anything that you know that you have to pay for in the course of your business is going to be is likely going to be deductible. So things that people don't always think about are, you know, educational expenses. Like if you, you know, if you subscribe to, you know, things like uh, the, the Wall Street Journal or, or magazines or take courses online that are even generally related to your business are things that are going to be uh, going to be deductible. Uh, in my experience, the best way to maximize your deductions though, because you don't, I mean, you don't want to have to know what is deductible and what is, and that's not your job and that shouldn't be your expertise. The best way, in my opinion, to do that is to is to hire a bookkeeper, um, and bookkeepers are are very inexpensive, um, and they are they will they're experts at classifying your expenses, so they'll know, um, you know, they'll be able to group your transactions and your expenses in such a way that when you get your taxes done at the end of the year, uh, because the expenses are are properly classified, it you know the taxes get done. Um, uh, you know, they get done uh, 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 correctly without you having to worry about it. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's why bother? It's you, you'll never figure out all the different things. I think a, a lot of the concern there is that what things am I spending my money on now? that I don't realize could be deductible. I think that's where a lot of that anxiety comes. That, yeah, that's and that's fair. I would, you know, there's there's lots of things. There's, you know, there's the home office deduction that that people don't always realize. There's, you know, there's uh, travel expenses um wh- which people may um you know sometimes hold back on a little bit. Um and and uh you know, my my experience is if it is, you know, generally related to your business, um you know, put it on your, you know, you should have a separate business account, a uh, bank account for your business. You know, you can expense it there. And then when you get your books done, you know, every month with your bookkeeper, you can, you can have a conversation about that. Right. And if they say, oh, no, 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 this, you know, this isn't deductible or this shouldn't be a business expense. Um, and then in the, you know, in the, you know, going forward in the future, you'll, you'll know better and you won't do it. Let's talk about home office deduction. A couple of people had questions about that. So what what does that mean? I can deduct my – if I work from home, I can deduct my home office in, in, in what way? Yeah, so uh, you can deduct uh, a home office if it is used exclusively for your business. So you – for example, what they what the IRS does not want you to do is to have like a spare bedroom and then, you know, throw a desk in there and, you know, sometimes you work there but you also have guests that stay over and stay in that room. That is not deductible. It has to be exclusively used throughout the entire year uh, for your business. And then what is deductible uh, is – I mean there's, there's, there's two different ways to do it. Uh, but just generally speak, and, and that's, I think, uh, you know, that's kind of in the weeds and, and your accountant will tell you exactly what you can deduct. But just know that if you want to deduct it, you have to use it exclusively, exclusively for the entire year. And some of the expenses that you'll be able to deduct um, are, you know, the internet that you pay for at home, uh, part, you'll, you know, you'll be able to deduct some of your rent, um, you know, basically the percent of the, you know, square footage that your office is of your, of your, of your home. Uh, you'll be able to deduct from your business. So yeah, if it's ten percent square footage wise, my office, which is exclusive for business, is ten percent of my home square footage. Then ten percent of utilities, ten percent of my rent or mortgage. I mean, would a mortgage apply as well? The interest expense would, yes. Okay, uh, which is interesting because interest expense is already deductible uh, in the U.S. for most people, isn't it? Uh, it is, um, I would have to do some research, but, uh, you wouldn't, I just, I know uh, off the top of my head, you wouldn't be able to double count it. Um, you can't double count, I think anything as far as taxes go, but, uh, but yes. Okay. So, uh, home office is a big one. Uh, so Eli had a question about, uh, buying a car versus leasing a car as a, as a freelancer. So are there any advantages that you know of? Either way, uh, as a freelancer f- uh, for your business, uh, it wouldn't make uh, it wouldn't make a difference uh, because the way you know um, the, the way that most people deduct their or, or deduct their car expense, and frankly, is the way that I recommend because it's just so much easier and more and more straightforward, is to count your miles. Um, so there's two ways that you can deduct a, a you know a car. Uh, one is to just track all of your miles whenever you travel or drive somewhere that's related to your business. 
Uh, and there's lots of apps uh, for iPhone and Android that can help you do that. Uh, they're really straightforward. And then the other way is, you know, you have to keep track of all of the expenses related to your car. So like oil changes and every time you fill up your tank and, and, and all these things, which are normally personal expenses, now you have to keep track of those too, um, which is, uh, in my opinion, which is kind of a pain. And, the, you know, the question here about leasing versus uh, buying, you know, that's one. That's you know one of the expenses that you would you know that you'd be throwing to the lump here that you'd be you'd be tracking. And so what I just tell every people is to track your miles. Gotcha. Okay. Which yeah, it's going to apply no matter what, right? So Ex- yeah, exactly. Okay. So let's circle back to the question about should I incorporate, and if so, what type of structure is is best for a freelancer, and when does it make sense to look at that? Any any insights or suggestions? What I tell people is you don't need to do it right away. You know, if you're if you're just dipping your toe in the water, maybe you have a client or two and you know, you, you know, you got some money coming in. You know, you don't it's uh it's really based on, you know, how comfortable you are with uh with the possibility of being sued frankly, right? Because incorporating protects your business assets from your personal assets. It's at the end of the day for these small businesses that's that's what it's doing. <clears throat> uh but once, you know, once you've gotten to a place where you're really serious about this as a business. Maybe you're doing it um, full time, or maybe it's you know providing a significant portion of your of your personal income. Uh, then I think it absolutely makes sense to to incorporate. Um, and it, not only does it provide you you know legal protection, but then it also it forces you to go open a you know a business bank account, and then it forces you to track your finances separately, which is uh, not only invaluable for uh, you know for doing your taxes and just you know maintenance and and bookkeeping, but it's also just going to be uh, very helpful in helping you run your business and uh, making sure that you know the health and the status of your business. Now I get asked this all the time. And, and I'm not sure if you can give us an answer because it might depend state by state, but uh, LLCs versus S-Corp. Uh, does an LLC typically give you better protection uh, of your assets than an S-Corp? Do you know? Uh, no. As long as you're good about you know separating personal from business expenses – and you don't, you know, you don't, you don't make personal uh, expenditures with your business card. They're going to give you the same, you know, the same quote unquote protection. In fact, what I recommend for for basically anyone who's just starting, they don't know what to get. You know, I want to incorporate. What do I do? Which one do I get? I, you know, I hear all these different things online. Uh, just get an LLC. LLCs are. The, they're the most simple and straightforward structures. They're the most flexible. They're the cheapest to to run. Uh, they have the least number of reporting requirements. Like like you get all of the benefits of of legal protection and being official by getting an LLC without the burden of of maintaining an S corp or having a board or all these different requirements that come up with other types of entities. Um, so. So that's what I recommend. And and one other thing there, I you know, getting back to the you know uh, filing, making an S corp uh, election, and saving on self self employment taxes. It's really confusing because here I'm saying get an LLC, but you know, but what about this thing to save uh, you know to save on self employment taxes? Well, it, it's it's super confusing, but it turns out that what you legally file as or excuse me what you legally the entity is with the states whether it's an LLC or an S corporation it can actually be something totally different when you file your taxes with the IRS so you can be an LLC 
legally with your state and file your taxes as an S corporation. And that's totally normal and legal and above board. Um, and so that's that's what I recommend for for most people. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So there's yeah there's a legal aspect to it, and then kind of a taxation aspect to it is what it sounds like. So um, okay, so let, let's talk a little bit about. Um, Estimated taxes. So this is a really hot topic when I put this out on Facebook uh, in terms of when and how you should calculate those. And let me start with Suzanne. She asked, in terms of estimated taxes, what if it's your first year freelancing? How do you figure estimated taxes that you have to pay? But maybe start, Trevor, by explaining what those are and then answering her question. Yeah, sure. So estimated taxes, again, people don't realize that they've been doing this already as an employee, Right, because normally as an employee, your employer withholds taxes for you uh, and gives those to the government. And then when you file your taxes at the end of the year, say you, you know your total tax liability is ten thousand dollars, but you've already withheld you know eight, and so your your total bill, you know, cash out of hand at the end of the year is two thousand dollars, right? And so what what the IRS is trying to avoid here with these estimated payments is is that you are unable to pay when your tax bill comes at the end of the year and that you so that so they force you through these quarterly payments to you know quote unquote withhold taxes yourself quarterly and so uh, and so the way that works so safe it's you know if it's your it's your uh, if it's your first year or any year um, the IRS gives you uh, they give you two ways, but I'm going to mention one because I think it's the most straightforward. And so you say, I, I have no idea what you know. How much should I be paying out of my pocket quarterly? Uh, I don't want to underpay, but I don't want to you know overpay either because that's you know that's cash out of my pocket. And so the IRS is like, okay, we know we you know we don't want to be too much of a burden upon people. And so they say, hey, whatever you paid in taxes last year. Go. You can. If you don't know the number, go ask your accountant. You can look it up in your tax forms. Whatever that number is, let's just say that it, again. Let's just say it's ten thousand dollars. As long as you pay that ten thousand uh, dollars divided by four in quarterly payments throughout the year, as long as you've paid that by the time taxes come, you know maybe your tax bill ends up being fifteen thousand, or maybe it ends up being thirty, or some larger number. As long as you paid the ten thousand dollars in quarterly payments, they'll be like, "That's okay. We're not going to penalize you for not paying enough throughout the year." Right, so you so the way it works, you take the ten thousand divided by four, and you end up paying twenty four twenty five hundred dollars um, at uh, at four different specified dates that you can that you can look up online. And so that's uh, you know that's that's the way this quarterly payments work. They're not extra taxes. They're not you know they're not anything. Uh, they're new. It's just the self employed way of doing uh, uh, withholdings uh, throughout the year. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So that leads me to the next question, which is from Hannah. It's, it's similar. She said, okay, what if I'm earning just a little bit freelancing right now and I'm doing it part-time? Do I still have to pay quarterly estimated taxes? Yeah, so that's a good question. So uh, if, you're, if you're making more than I think it's it's either – and I, I'm sorry, I don't know if it's on top of my head. It's either $600 or $1,000 um, in, in, in uh, like, like 1099 income, uh, then you're going to be required to, to pay uh, – uh, quarterly estimated uh, taxes. What uh, the, the good thing though is, say it's part time. So you know, I'm making assumptions here about members of your audience. But if they're working part time and are still uh, employed full time by an employer, you know that employer is still going to be making withholdings, right? And so one of the things you can do is you can just have your employer increase the withholdings. 
uh, and that a lot of times will cover these estimated payments. The rule is is that um, uh, for because what people don't realize, right, is is that if say you you had no ten ninety nine. 1099 income, and say you had no side business or anything like that, you're just an employee. If it, if it worked out that your employer at the end of the year that you owed more than $1,000 because your employer did not withhold enough money, like say you owed $2,000 in taxes at the end of the year, that means you actually should have been making quarterly estimated payments too, even though you don't have a business, even though you don't have any sidecom or anything like that, right? And so the rule is if you're going to owe more than $1,000 at the end of the year, you need to be making these quarterly estimated payments. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now, Dana and Test had a similar question regarding estimated taxes, and it had to do with cash flow and preparing for them. Uh, so I believe in Dana's case, she was hit with a huge unexpected tax bill uh, because she didn't pay enough uh, in, throughout the year. So uh-huh. uh, I know that's, you know, there's a lot of elements to that, but the, the real question was this how can I better prepare for this? I'm getting checks in from clients throughout the year. How can I create a very simple system so that, you know, when, when those estimated taxes payments come due, I actually have the, the cash set aside? How do I make that determination? Yeah. So, I mean, I would. I just assume that I'm going to be paying, and this is this is uh, unfortunately not the most, uh, you know, precise or or specific uh, advice because everyone's situation is so different. But I assume that I'm going to be paying through the nose in taxes, and so I will, you know, off the top, uh, you know, with any, you know, with income from my business, I'll assume that twenty to thirty percent of that's going to go to taxes, and I will. No, I will set that aside. Some of that I will use to pay my quarterly payments, but I also set some of it aside so that I uh, can be able to pay my taxes at the end of the year. Uh, I think people just don't. This is this is a budgeting problem, right? Where people just are just not aware of how much taxes really are, and you know they're not used to paying the extra seven percent from self-employment taxes, and you know they're not used to doing all these things. So I just it's just it's it's a budgeting. Problem. So just make sure that you're budgeting an extra, you know, or off the top line, twenty to thirty percent of your revenue uh, for for your taxes. Make your quarterly payments, uh, and then also be tracking. You know, know what your your net income is month to month. Like if you have a bookkeeper, right, which you should, or if you're doing your books yourself, which is also totally fine. Well, you, you know, then you know what your what your net income, your profit is every month. And if you know what your profit is, well, then you know you have a rough idea of what your you know of what your of your tax bill is going to be. And I agree with you. I mean, and I know where they're coming from because I've I've been hit with that surprise <laughs> several times before. Um, but when I've been diligent about just taking a percentage, it's worked out really well. I just don't always do it. So I guess what what I just got from that is, look, just be conservative and just take 30% of every check you get and automatically transfer it to a separate account, which is so easy to do if you do online banking these days, right? Um, and that way that money is there. Yeah, yeah, and some people might say, "Oh, thirty percent—that's a lot." And you know, that would be that would be conservative. That was, you know, it was a high number to be safe. But yeah, but but just make sure that there is some, you know, amount, some ten percent, twenty percent that you're putting aside for taxes. Because if you're self-employed, you know, it's happened to you. It's it, you know, it's happened. It's happened to everybody where you end up paying more taxes than you expected. Like it's going to happen. So if you have some money set aside for the end of the year when the tax bill comes, it's going to feel a lot better. You're right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about retirement savings. Uh, somebody had a question, uh, and I didn't jot down who it was, but the question said, uh, at what point 
when you start earning money as a freelancer, do you consider putting away for retirement and at what point during the year? I think it's a difficult question to answer because it's everyone's different. But I think the what I got from it is, you know, when does it make sense, generally speaking, to do that? Oh, that is a that's a tough one, um, because as you said, that's really specific, not just to someone's business, but also their, you know, their personal finances and their, you know, their, you know, their financial goals and, and how they want to retire. Um, I like to, you know, put away every year as much money as I can, meaning after, you know, I have like a, a, a an emergency fund that I, you know, keep in just in a bank account that's cash that I can access anytime. Um, you know, I have, uh, you want to maximize contributions to, you know, if you have a Roth IRA or, or an IRA, to those, um, and uh, if you you know any money left over after all, you know putting all these different plans, then yeah, then I'll you know then I'll put that into you know a separate investment account that I don't look at that I never touch. Um, but it, but uh, unfortunately, yeah, it's it's very specific to your own needs and 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 financial financial situation. Um, but I, I, the only thing that I would say is that uh, is that uh, don't. Uh, don't underestimate how much money it re- uh, you're required to save up front to enjoy a decent retirement later on. And, you know, and there's lots of places where you can find help in kind of calculating what those numbers look like. But, uh, but yeah, but you know, with, with compounding interest and, and compounding returns, uh, the earlier you start, the earlier you can start, the better. Well, I think there are, uh, there are several great options for retirement for self-employed people that aren't necessarily available for people who are traditionally employed too, right? So. Yes, and uh, there's a blog post that I wrote actually about that exact thing that um, we can refer uh, your listeners to. Uh, and basically, the way they work is that they, you know, they allow you to to put away a lot more uh, tax deductible actually than you could if you were just a regular employee. Man, if if you can send that to me, I'll make sure to include that link uh, in the show notes. Absolutely. So. Uh, Liz had a question about state taxes, and specifically, she was worried about what happens if I have clients out of my outside of my state, which is extremely common, uh, or even outside the U.S. You know, how do I avoid getting in trouble with maybe uh, the, uh, the the state taxing agency for the state the client is in, or my state? And any considerations there? So, where the client is located doesn't matter. Right. It, what matters is where you're located and where your business is located. So you don't need to worry about if someone's, you know, this and these are your clients. If these were your contractors, it'd be kind of a different story. But if these are your clients, then uh, and it's your income, well, then you just you just do your taxes like normal. You, the, the, where the income is coming from geographically does not uh, does not matter. Gotcha. So if I I'm in Georgia and we have a state income tax, so if I generate income here for providing a service, I have to pay federal and state income tax for my state. That is correct. Okay. Uh, same thing with the uh, outside the U.S. Right. So if I work, if I do some serve, uh, freelance work for somebody in the U.K., I, the, my business is still located here in Georgia. The income gets recognized here. Correct. Yep. Okay. Um, okay. So. Tell me a little bit about IRS audits. Uh, it, you know, are there any anything we can do to avoid to avoid audits? I know there's this is a huge topic, but any kind of insights specifically for self-employed people? 
Yeah, so just as a general rule, self-employed people tend to get uh, audited just a little bit more than your, you know, your average uh, income tax return. Uh, mostly because they're more prone to get messed up, not because people are more fraudulent if they're self-employed. Um, and uh, so there's certain things that you do that you know kind of increase the 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 risk of being audited. So like if you do the home office deduction, um, if you file um, as an S corp, um, because that's a really easy thing to kind of uh, overdo and underpay taxes. So there's these certain things that uh, that are totally legal that you can. 100% above board that you can that's that's fine it's just you know maybe more likely to uh increase your audit risk um do you want me to get into the types of audits cuz i think that would be helpful to people too sure sure yeah and so what people i think people hear this word audit and they're like super afraid that you know irs agents with guns are going to be storming into their office and you know going to be looking over all the returns and everything and that's you know that's that that kind of thing kind of do, does happen uh but mostly when people talk about audits there are, you know there's there's four really three types of audits one is what's called a correspondence audit where if uh if realize if someone Unless someone told you that you're being audited you may not even realize it and this happens to people where you know they get a, basically they get a letter from the IRS and the IRS says, "Hey, you know, we saw your return from, you know, usually it's about a year to two and a year, two years after the, the return's been filed. They'll say, "Hey, we saw your return for let's say 2014. Uh, we think you owe, uh, you know, let's say, you know, five thousand dollars more because of X, Y, Z. Uh, either pay that or send us evidence and tell us why you do not think that you owe this extra five thousand dollars, right? And this is called a correspondence audit. It's by mail." Um, if you're above board, you just send them the evidence and they're totally fine with this. This actually happened with me in the state of Utah, uh, where you leave there a couple years ago and, uh, they sent me a letter. They said, we think you owe this. And I spent, sent back the documentation and they were, they sent me a letter back saying, Oh, okay. You're, you're, you're fine. It's no big deal. Right. Um, so that's the, it's the easiest one. The next one is called, uh, it's, uh I think it's called an office audit where, uh, so the IRS has locations throughout the United States. And this is where they'll ask you to come in to see them in person. And they'll ask to see like some specific uh, transaction or deduction. Again, they're just looking for evidence about a specific thing, but they want to see you in person. So if it's a, you know, let's say it's a home office deduction, they want to, you know, they want to see proof that the room was as big as you said it was and that your expenses were as what they, what you said they were. And so you can gather that documentation, you go in person, you make your case, it's all true, you're good to go. Next type of audit is where the IRS comes to you. Now, this is you know, going to be more serious. Uh, this is, you know, they're, maybe they're going to do an audit of your whole return. Um, that's called a field audit. And, uh, and those types of audits are, you know, uh, the chances of – there's, you know, there's a random element, but there's also a weighted element based on the type of return um, and based on, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, it, the richer you are, you know, the more likely you are to be audited because it's going to be more worth their time to audit you, right, for those three types of audits. There's a totally separate type of audit that's totally random. You can't do anything about – you can, You know, it's just uh, – and it's it's uh, it's unfortunately the worst type of audit. But they do, they do maybe 50,000 of these every year. There are very, very few of these audits done. And these types – I forget the name of it, but these types of audits are where they go in line by line. They check everything because these are the ones – that they use as a sample of how accurately people are doing their returns and that they use to update uh, like their algorithm for figuring out who to audit in the future. So you can't really do anything about that audit. Don't worry about it. As long as you're above board though, as long as you're doing your taxes correctly, you're going to be fine. These audits are just um, 
you know, they're to get people who owe actually genuinely owe more money, not just to make people's lives more difficult. Wow, some of those still sound scary. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, and it's you know, it's no fun to get a letter from the IRS, regardless of of what they're asking from you. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, if you've you know, if your business is large enough, you know, you should you you know, you should have a CPA, you should have someone doing your taxes at the end of the year, and they'll be able to help you with this stuff if it's really serious. So let's go there. And this is actually my my last question. Uh, you've recommended that people should get an accountant, should get a CPA. You've also mentioned a bookkeeper. I couldn't agree more. Um, I actually very early on in my business, I got a CPA. It's one of the best decisions I've made in my business. And in 2008, I got a bookkeeper, which actually in the same office. And um, I've never looked back. Uh, but uh, so I, I, I'm not going to ask you if people should do it. You've already said it. I completely agree. I guess the overall question, though, is what should someone look for in an accountant? Great. I know I need an accountant. I'm look. I'm willing to get one. What? How, how do I find one? It's a great question. The number one thing that I tell people is to uh, look for an accountant that has clients in a similar industry to you, right? So if you're a writer, um, you know, ideally you find an accountant that has other writing clients, um, or if they don't, someone who at least has other full time 1099 contractor clients. Because what you what you want is an accountant who know who's done a ton of returns that are identical to yours. That yours is boring. That all of your questions that he you know he he or she the accountant is gonna you know is gonna see this a million times before. You don't want to be their first rodeo for your for your type of return. And if you're a freelancer, quite frankly, you know that's very unlikely to happen. But but again, the one thing that I tell people is you know look for someone who's done. Um, uh, done some more types of returns. So now, where to find where to find an accountant? I say, um, you know, first of all, ask you know, ask for referrals, ask for you know, people in your industry that you know that you trust if they have an accountant and who they like. And then, if that doesn't work, um, the number one website that I recommend, where I actually found my accountant, is Thumbtech.com. Um, you just go in there and say, you know, say where you are and 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 what type of service you need, and then they'll send you a, a bunch of people that you can then interview and, and go through. Um, so that, those, that's, those are the main things I recommend. Uh, one last point on this, and this is kind of just a bonus if you can, if you can make it happen, but what I've seen uh, for myself and other people is if you can um, – so, you know, an accountant, a CPA – works you know for 20 or 30 years and they build their book of business and their client base over this long period of time and over that course of of course of time you know they get some very very large clients that they're going to you know they're, they're going to cater to more you know these are clients with you know million dollar businesses and and larger and so if you go to someone who's been in business for 30 years and let's say you make you know even you know 100 200k a year you know your return might not be that important to them. You might just be another, you know, another 1040 that they have to get through versus going to someone who's experienced, who's worked with, say, a big firm for five or six years and they're just starting their own partnership. Well, then they're going to be trying to earn your business and maybe they have much greater aspirations and ambitions than doing returns for businesses of your size. But when they're starting out, they're going to be they're going to cater to you because they want you to give them referrals and they want to treat you well. So, you know, that's kind of a bonus. It's hard to find people like that. But if you can find someone who's smaller that really would care about you in particular, that's a really good thing to look for too. I think it's solid advice. Uh, I had the same experience. I worked with a really big firm and they're huge, got very wealthy people as clients. And I, I just wasn't a good fit. Um, eventually I left very disappointed after a few years. So uh, 
Yeah, good and, stuff. Yeah, and, and it's it's not anyone's fault, right? It's just the incentives are It is. Lot. It is, totally, totally. So what about bookkeepers? Where do I find a good bookkeeper? So uh, bookkeepers are everywhere. I mean, you've seen bookkeepers walking down the street. You don't even know it. Like bookkeepers are just, I mean, Craigslist, Thumbtack, uh, just Google, I need a bookkeeper. And there's, I mean, literally thousands and thousands of these services. So it's not hard to find a bookkeeper. It's, you know, again, it's finding one that you like and you work well with. And and unfortunately, frankly, a lot of times that's just working with the person to see how you, how you, how you work together. The good thing is that bookkeepers are relatively inexpensive. We're talking, I mean, it varies, but you know, we're talking 15 to, you know, $30 an hour and they work maybe a couple hours a month. Um, and, uh, I, I would get a bookkeeper, you know, like, today like bookkeepers just you know make everyone's life so much better you get your financials every month uh you know exactly how much profit you have you, you know then you can use that to figure out what your quarterly payment should be and then once you have those beautiful books prepared every month at the end of the year it's really easy to do your taxes because you just hand those off to your cpa and then they do your taxes and you're like oh i didn't have to do a thing it's great um so anyways i know i've been i've been harping on the the bookkeeper and cpa thing this whole time but that is that's really the best best way to go one of the best days of my life was when i turned over my bookkeeping to to a bookkeeper <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i'm a finance major i mean so oh yeah you know, here's my philosophy i thought you know what uh, i think it's it's it, it can't hurt to do your taxes maybe a year or two and do your bookkeeping for a little bit especially at first you know you're bootstrapping right so you got to cut corners and but I think there's a there's an element to uh, just kind of learning this on your own so you understand what's under the hood. But man, after that, I, I'm a big believer in giving it to somebody who can do it better, faster, cheaper. That way you can focus on what you do best. But I'm grateful for having the experience at first because I understand what they're asking me and where it's coming from when when we do have a conversation. That's true. That's true. I mean, yeah, if you know. If yeah, if you're just start off, if you you know if this is a side gig for you, you know it's not substantial income. Yeah, and you know you only have a couple transactions a month. Yeah, it's gonna make sense to you know to do your books uh, by yourself at first, and that's that's totally okay. You know I uh, you know I did that for a couple years too, um, and you know my wife has a photography business; she's done that too, right? So that's that's not you know not foreign to me. But yeah, but it, but once you know you're serious about the business, once you know you have substantial uh, a relatively substantial income coming in, yeah, it it will be one of the best days of your business's life when you hire a bookkeeper. <laughs> So Trevor, this has been this has been fantastic. Great information here. Very actionable. I know my listeners are going to be really happy to to listen to this. Uh, where can they learn more about you and what you're doing these days? Yeah, so you can learn more about uh, me and what I'm working on at my personal website at trevormckendrick.com. Um, and, uh, I also, I also actually offer an accounting course for freelancers and contractors, um, that you can, uh, you can, when it, uh, you know, it, uh, when it relaunches, uh, you can sign up to hear more about that um, on my website. Oh, fantastic. Great, great to hear. We'll, we'll include links to all that uh, in the show notes. And uh, again, thanks for coming on the show. This has been very informative, very helpful. It was a lot of fun, Ed. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you got some great value from Trevor's information and from that discussion. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And don't forget, real quick, tax day this year is actually on Monday. April 18th. So if you're all set to go and ready to rush out to the post office, don't worry. You actually have till Monday to mail in your check and to file. So no need to go out of your way today if you're running behind. 
Finally, the number of this episode didn't go unnoticed. This is the 100th episode of the High Income Business Writing Podcast. And I have a celebratory episode scheduled for the next show where I'm going to go through some of the biggest highlights and takeaways from the first 100 episodes of this podcast. So stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. And that's it for today, folks. Again, I'm your host, Ed Gandia. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have an awesome day. The High Income Business Writing Podcast is a production of B2B Business Launcher. Learn more at b2blauncher.com.